The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to A Guided Life Podcast, where we talk about all things spirit and life. I'm your host, Laura West. Follow me on Facebook at GuidedWest11, on Instagram at GuidedWest, and on Twitter at LauraWest111. I also have a website at www.laurawest.net, where you can download a free guide on how to meet your own spirit guides. My book, Guided, is available on Amazon, and it's about soul teams, intuition, mediumship, and spiritual tools such as oracle and tarot cards, crystals, pendulums, and so much more. My guest today is Krista Ziomata. Krista is the creator and host of I'm Awake, Now What? podcast. Created in 2018 as an audio community for anyone who is on the path of spirituality, healing, and personal development. At the age of 28, Krista decided to walk away from her religion of origin after suffering from religious trauma and wounding. She would spend the next six years studying religion, philosophy, psychology, and spirituality in search of answers, healing, and a way to reintegrate fully into her humanity and divinity. After emerging from this experience, her focus has been to help others heal and come home to themselves by teaching the path to liberation, integration, and inner peace. Her first nonfiction book, The Alchemy of Kindness, will be out summer of 2022. Well, Krista, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really thrilled to have a conversation with you. Oh, thank you for having me, Laura. I'm really excited to be on your show today. Wonderful. Well, I do want to, I mean, I have to throw the plug in, but I got to be a guest on Krista's amazing (laughs) podcast. So guys, please check it out. Uh, Would you mind giving us the name of it? Yeah, my podcast is called I'm Awake Now What? And you can find it on any podcast platform. Okay, I love that so much because I feel like a lot of the work that I'm doing has to do with helping people in their awakenings or soon after their awakenings or just any part of their spiritual awakening. So when I heard about your podcast, I was like, oh, that is so right up my alley. So I'm just really excited to have a conversation with someone who has mutual feelings and ideologies and desires and hopes and dreams at this point (laughs) in our lives. So, so thrilled to have conversation with you. So, uh, Krista, I would love to start by hearing about, besides the podcast, all the other great things that you're up to these days. Yeah, so I still work full-time. I always like to say that because I think there's there's a lot of pressure in the spiritual world to just be one or the other in it all, not at all. And I feel like that's, it's such a big, important piece to know that you can still have a regular job if that's how you need to support yourself. So, 
in my day job, I, it's actually very fulfilling. I work in clinical research and I, I'm very lucky to work to help bring new therapeutics to the endometrial cancer space. So it's, it's very meaningful work that I do in my day job. But then like many people, I have a lot of passion about spiritual awakening because of my own life experiences. And I, I started the podcast almost as now almost going to be five years now as an outlet for people to have a space where they could explore other ideas about what it means to be connected to source, what it means when you leave your religion of origin, or you grow up with nothing at all. And you just want to understand what this human experience is about and bringing people like yourself, and many other experts in the field who ride and that line of equanimity between the divine and the human, that is, there's no map and there's no playbook for that. And so my podcast is really dedicated to that. And then I'm in the process of getting my first book published called The Alchemy of Kindness. And <laughs> I'm still waiting to hear back from publishers and see where that goes. But the intention of that book was, I think we all have sort of a some primary woundings. One of my primary woundings was self-hatred for a very long time. I didn't know how to love myself. And that self-hatred manifested with really negative dialogue. So once I got through that experience, like I did with the podcast, um, when I left my religious experience, I thought I have to put the process of how I healed myself into a space. And the book is, is that space of walking back our internal kindness into ourselves. That is so transformative. So that's me in a nutshell. I mean, what a beautiful nutshell. I think that's, a, that's just amazing work that you're doing. And I love that you mentioned the full-time work. I myself also work full-time as a nurse in a more administrative role. So I love that we both have these jobs that are really, I, I think that they're really good jobs and they're meant to help people. And, and it just really helps to balance the physical and the spiritual. Yeah. So I love, I, I really do love that you mentioned that. I'm like a cancer too. So I like to oh. have stability. So, yeah. you know, like some people are, are really good at the entrepreneurial thing. And I think there's so much pressure to be a spiritual entrepreneur. And I, I think you can do both. Oh, and thank you for saying that. <laughs> because even though <laughs> I felt that within myself, like, I don't feel like I need to quit my job. <laughs> thank you for saying that. I feel like that was the permission I didn't even know I needed. <laughs> <laughs> just to hear from someone else. It's another way that, that I feel like we parallel a little bit, which is which is really, really cool. And then writing this book, gosh, what a process from how you had mentioned uh, the, the self-hatred. I mean, that's really, really heavy stuff. There. Yeah. Can I ask you, what did self-hatred look like? For me, it was really a lot, a lot of negative talk to myself about what people thought about me, about the relationships I had around me, about the success or lack there of success that I had. And it kept me in that unworthiness space. And I think, I think we all have sort of, I've just decided in my own journey that I think, I think every human, for whatever reason, we come in experiencing unworthiness in some form. It manifests, however, for everybody, it's different. And I think it's it's also shades of unworthiness because it's sometimes it can be something very small um, as like not being able to receive when people want to, you know, buy you lunch. And, and it can be as grandiose as something like not being able to receive love, right? There, It's this huge spectrum. But for me... The root cause of it, which I talk about in the book, was I was given up for adoption when I was very young. 
like a baby, basically six to eight months around then. And I was kicked around in foster care and sexually abused, emotionally abused, physically abused, all the things. They say when you're in that zero to seven year old age range, those are like your formative times in your life where you start to understand how the world loves you and understands you basically. And as a child, not having stability, being kicked around, receiving love in that really abusive way created this roadmap for me. And so it manifested in my own self-hatred and unworthiness of like, do I deserve good things? And then I started to, like a lot of us who deal with self-loathing and hatred and unworthiness, I started to work it. You know, I tried to, my, my ego was like, you know what? What if we, you know, get the best education we can get? What if we get skinny? What if we get the best job? When I was really young in my early 30s, all I wanted to do was make a six-figure income. I thought, if I do that, my parents will love me. My friends will love me. Everyone will love me. I got there and nothing changed. My parents were still disappointed in me because I wasn't Catholic. <laughs> so there's a whole variety. I talk about this in the book. So for me, it was... I needed to go and understand what the root cause was because when I was struggling with my self-hatred, I didn't understand where it had started. And so that journey in the book is going back and looking at all of the influences that sort of took me away from myself, essentially. How did I come away from myself? And building a, a literal bridge, like a psychological bridge between my unhealed wounded self and my fully realized healed self. And this is years in the making. I, I want to be clear about this. It's not something that happened overnight. There were all these synchronistic things that happened along that journey, which I talk about in the book, which is finding a yogic ashram after I left my religious experience in Catholicism and a Swami who her main focus was diving into the mind. She worked um, with Youngonian psychology, which I thought was really weird. But now I, I see it's very synchronistic as where my life would have gone anyways, because I just think we, we get on these paths, right? And it just unfolds with us naturally. So that started the process of me questioning, like, why, why am I talking to myself this way? You know, and that question is the question that started everything and the unraveling and the putting back together of myself. So it's really important. I think in our society, we don't talk about how much self-hatred in all of its shades affect us all with our body image, with our cultural image, with our gender. There's so many ways we turn away from ourselves in our life experiences, and we don't talk about it enough everyone sort of glosses over it and it's so deep and it's so ingrained and it's, it's pervasive in our, in our culture. And I want to help people like really love themselves. Like I love myself now, like truly can say that and, and not feel cheesy or inauthentic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess one of those things where misery loves company, right? <laughs> yes. I'm curious because you had mentioned that it took time it took time from that self-hatred to now self-love. At the beginning of that transition, what did it look like? Because I picture that to do that work, the hardest step is the first step. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, what did that first step look like for you? For me, the first step was, it's funny because it feels similar to what if you've ever heard Eckhart Tolle 
tell his story about his dark night of the soul. I had something similar and not that I'm saying I'm like Eckhart Tolle, but I want to say that I think this is a common experience that we have. But the first step for me was there was this moment where I just couldn't stand myself. Like that's how much I hated myself. I could not stand myself. I mean, even now I can like feel what that feeling feels like to have that angst against yourself. And I just remember saying to myself, I don't want to feel like that anymore. Like, why should I feel like this about myself? This feels out of sync or alignment. I didn't have that vocabulary at that time, obviously, but I just thought, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And that was right at the beginning when I was falling into this, this ashram and, and learning about meditation and stillness. And our Swami would always say, and all swamis and yogis, everybody says this now in the spiritual world is, you know, what you feed your mind is like what you would feed your body. So it just regurgitates what you give it. So if you're feeding it a steady diet of you're fat, nobody loves you, you're ugly, you'll always be alone, nobody likes you, you're not smart enough, you can't do this, you know, that's what you feel on the inside. It just comes through you in your day to day. And we are, we know now on a scientific level, we're creating our own reality all of the time. So I was creating this very dystopian life for myself where I couldn't be loved by people and I couldn't love myself. And that first step was saying, all right, I don't want to feel like that. That was the first step. And then what happens next? If you've done silent meditation, you know that it, it takes a lot of mastery, right? Because meditation is hard no matter what. And I, that's another spiritual like myth I want to just bust there. Like people who say meditation is easy, you know, like, I don't know, they must not have any problems or like who inner dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> who are those people? I don't know. I'm here to just keep it real. The silent meditation. I always liked silence as a general rule. I still am like that. I sit in my house very quiet. However, my inner dialogue was always going and I didn't realize it, you know, until it's brought to my attention in the ashram. The next step was when I got to be able to be in silent meditation, I had this epiphany that my negative dialogue thoughts, they, they started to come and I would let them take me down this roller coaster of, what are you doing in this ashram? Like everyone's going to judge you. Your family hates your guts now because you're not Catholic. I was getting divorced at the same time. So it was like a snowball of just craziness. But I realized at one point in that silence, if I'm not going to allow any thought to come through, you know, that saying, if you have nothing nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Yeah. That's what I did to myself. So I said, if I don't have anything nice to say about myself, I'm not going to say it at all. So that's how I stopped those negative thoughts in the beginning. And it was like, I say this in the book, it's like training a puppy. You know, when you tap them on the nose or you do your English lead and you pull, you pull up, once that thought, you know, I would have a thought that would say like, I would look, go past a mirror and I would say, oh, I look so 
And I wouldn't finish that sentence. Stop. I would stop. It was like a stop, a hard stop. And, and it got further and further behind where that thought never came, but it was a retraining. And again, from a psychological and scientific standpoint, what I was doing there was retraining my neural pathways, which a lot of people in spirituality and psychology do. I didn't have those words for, I didn't know that terminology, but that's what I was doing. I was retraining my brain, deadening those electrical senses back to the old story, to those old self-loathing. And it wasn't at that point that I was like loving myself. It was all about just stopping the negative dialogue. Like I had to, and I got to the precipice, you know, at the the deepest, most darkest point of my life was annihilation. Um, And I know a lot of people feel like that, you know, I hated myself so much. I just didn't want to live. And I had a lot stacked against me in my personal life that seemed overwhelming and untenable. And when we're these humans in our little ecosystems of our lives, it's really hard for us to have a 50,000 foot view. I think a lot of us experience that, especially if we're new on the spiritual path and we don't have all the wisdom and everything that we have today, everything I have. And I just thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this experience. And that was the hardest thing to be like, well, I've got two options. I either get out of here (laughs) or I try to beat this thing. And it was, I'm going to try to beat this thing. And it was years of that work and those steps and multiple steps that are described in the book as well. I mean, I, I really just have to commend you on your courage and your discipline and your perseverance for getting yourself out of that space, because I, I can imagine how difficult that is like, I'm going to be real here too. Yeah. And I have a lot of internal struggle with, I mean, this, I don't want this to sound quaint, but for me, this is a thing. Not eating when I'm not hungry. Just how difficult it is for me to be like, okay, I want to watch what I eat. I want, I want to lose a few pounds to be healthy. But then comes the evening time, my weakest hour. And I am like, oh, you know, if I just eat this, it won't be a big deal. And I totally go against that. And so for me, that is hard <laughs> to get out of that mind frame. Mm-hmm. So for you to have done that in a harder spot, I'm just like, wow. I'm like, I mean, gosh, if she can do it, I can do it. So it's very inspiring as well. And I, I know that was something that you were meant to experience, but I wish you could have learned your lesson in a not so hard way for you. And perhaps you feel the same. I don't know. But, you know, just again, thank you for you're so strong, like you really are. Um, and it's just really inspirational to to hear. And it just really makes me realize, you know, I can I can retrain my brain, too. I can do it. You raised such a good point, And I want to walk it back what you just said about being quaint. One thing I've learned on this path of homecoming and liberation of the self is that we're such a comparative society. But one thing that I want to hit home for anyone that's listening is that whatever you are struggling with is unique to you and it doesn't get on a scale and it can't be measured. It's like, it's what you are facing. And if I was in your shoes, what if it collapsed me or what if it didn't bother me? There's this whole spectrum. And I think it's important for us to never invalidate whatever it is. I just want to circle back on that for you. Thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate that because I do find myself not wanting to diminish 
other people's experience, or I don't want it to come across like, oh, well, I'm comparing your hardship to mine. So I do appreciate that. I really do. And I think that that's such an important thing to share. So thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah. It's important to remember like it's apples and oranges. Yeah. We're never comparing the same thing. Yes. And that's so great to bring up. And I think we need to normalize that more. Yes. I mean, it's hard. It was very, it's ingrained, but you know, we can rewire our brains, right? Like we can do it. We can do it. I wanted to ask you uh, during this time of finding your spirituality, I do want to bring up the leaving family religion or the religion you were brought up with. I do want to talk about that. Uh, So perhaps let's start there. If you wouldn't mind maybe talking about what that was like for you to figure out if the religion was right for you and then taking that step of stepping away and what that was like for you. Yeah, it's a wild experience. And I've I've told it a lot. So if people are coming here, heard it before, I apologize for having to repeat too much. But when I was five years old, I got adopted into this family that was part of a Catholic offshoot. And it was a cultic offshoot, meaning that it wasn't necessarily sanctioned by the Catholic Church, but it was approved. So like the priest was ordained and everything, but they were the subsect of Catholicism. Um, the priest owned a ranch in the outskirts of El Paso in New Mexico, where they sort of merged together. And he would hold mass out there. So church was not in an actual physical church. We would protest at abortion clinic doctor's offices, When we were little kids, we were forced to stand in front of abortion clinic doors. We were forced to go to the Democratic National Conventions and wear shirts with photos of aborted babies. A lot of indoctrination. And then within that indoctrination, a lot of suppression of the feminine. Again, which I didn't have words for at the time, but now I do know in in the hindsight of my experience. But when I was at, at around 28 years old, again, it was... When I talked back there about like trying to work it for my family to get their love and their approval, which a lot of us do regardless of trauma, <laughs> we're all hardwired to want our parents' approval. It's just us as, as human beings. So I tried to stay on that line of religiousness up until I got married. I did everything I was supposed to, I will say, like in that same trajectory of what everyone expects. So you go to college, you get married, and you're supposed to have kids. Although I didn't have kids, thankfully, before I got divorced. But when I was around 28, I started to have this existential crisis of, I don't know if I believe everything the church is telling me. And I I started to not want to go to church. That's where it started. I just thought, I don't want to wake up on Sunday and go to church and hear some man tell me about whatever. I just, that's where my, my descent started. My descent was like, I don't want to go to church. And that snowballed into like, well, why don't I want to go to church? And I've always been a curious person, but in my religious experience, questioning and critical thinking are not allowed. You're just supposed to follow. So then I started following my own intuition at the time and thought, you know, I don't know what I believe anymore. I feel like I don't believe any of this. I feel like, honestly, feel like it's all bullshit. And I feel trapped. And I feel, I feel afraid that I'm going to live a half life if I stay aligned to this order of which that was sort of lined out for me when I came into this family. So I decided at the same time, and in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done them at the same time, or at least not have told my family at the same time. 
But I told them I was getting divorced and I told them I was leaving the Catholic church. And as you can imagine, they were livid and they, they basically didn't, my parents didn't talk to me for about a year and a half, two years. And then my immediate family, they took it so personal. Everyone took it so personal. This is what I'll never understand. They took it so personal, me leaving the faith um, and then leaving my marriage in my immediate family there was only one person in our family that had ever been divorced. So it was like I was the second person basically in the line of probably three generations that had never gotten divorced. And that really fell flat on my family and they were really upset with me and really disappointed. Um, They're still disappointed in me, but they've learned, they've learned to live with it now. So that was the beginning of that experience was like, I felt, and I felt like part of the self-loathing, which I do talk about when I say in the book, there were these like three areas of self-loathing and that were incepted when I was young. And one of them was in the Catholic church. And that was about my femininity. And I talk about this a lot on the podcast. I think it's really important. I do think it's, it's one of the reasons I feel that I was meant to be here was to, ignite and activate the feminine because she's so suppressed. But when we were in our Catholic experience, they didn't want us to wear makeup because it would make men lust. We had to wear long clothing so that men wouldn't look at our bodies. I was told that I had to be feminine in a very specific way, which meant like I didn't talk. I wasn't fun. I didn't interact with men. They couldn't be my equals, all these things. And if you know me now, I'm not that I would is never going to be that kind of person. (laughs) And so I suppressed all of that within myself for so long. So coming out of that religious experience, I feel like I have a master's class in religious wounding and trauma because there was so much there to pick from and to have to work through when I came out of that experience. It was almost harder to leave my religion of origin than it was to leave my marriage. I know that kind of sounds weird to say, but for me, it was like, I didn't realize all the indoctrination damage that had been done to my psyche as a human being. And my time after that in the ashram, about five, six to seven years, like that whole thing, that whole healing journey included healing from that religious wounding experience as well. I mean, you're definitely learning the lessons in this life. You're like uh, advancing like so fast in this life. I mean, it's just, it's really inspirational just to hear you talk about all these things and to to now have the courage to share. I mean, I imagine maybe for a while you were even afraid to talk about it. I feel like I would be. It just blows my mind because I feel so, uh, I feel so free for the most part with expressing myself and getting to wear what I want and, you know, do what I want and all these things. I just... Gosh, I can't even imagine that suppression. I'm curious to know, what is it that you do share about the feminine? I mean, so much. I think I want to always start out with reminding women how unbelievably powerful we are in strength, in fortitude, in intelligence, in beauty, in grace. I don't even think most women understand because we've been indoctrinated, not just by religion, but by the patriarchy, which is, a, is really like a shadow agent of religion because they're sort of intertwined. You can't really see where one starts and the other ends. But that we are so powerful and we forget 
I feel like we forget how powerful we are. And we allow our culture and our systems to tell us that we have to exist this way. And I feel like I am living proof that we don't have to, you know, and I, and I, when I say that, I mean, I've railed against a lot of things and pushed against those norms and people don't like it. Believe me, they don't. And even in my professional life, asking for more money, because you know why, when I ask for more money, you know, the girl behind me, she's going to get more money too, especially with women of color. I love to speak to women of color because you think about the suppression of the feminine. It's also a, a spectrum, but women of color, especially they're on the deep end of that spectrum. And, you know, I don't know if, if you felt that in your life as well, but we are on the other end of it where we're still earning less than our white counterparts by gender, things like that. But in terms of spirituality and igniting the feminine, the things that I feel passionate about to share is that it's important for women to continue to find their voice. We all need to find our authentic voice in this world and feel safe enough, regardless of what the world pushes back on us, to express ourselves, to fully embody ourselves as women. I look at women, I just think, man, I get why they tried to put us down for so long because you get women together and it's unbelievable. It's powerful. And we have something that men also have suppressed within themselves, which is their intuition and their nurturing that is not talked about a lot. So, you know, we've had our feminine suppressed in us and so have men. So they've suffered through that as well. And that doesn't get a lot of, I would say a lot of notoriety. You know, people don't want to talk about softening up men, but it's like the masculine energy that we've been living in for these last 25, 3000 years, it's not working in our society. And I think to your point of calling me courageous, my call to action would be to ask women to be courageous. Enough is enough. We have to speak up. We have to get out there on everything. And I know that seems like a lot to say, you know, you have to be politically active and spiritually active and all those things. But we have a lot at stake as a gender, but we're so powerful together. And we could turn this whole earthly experience around if we could find the courage to just step into our power. And again, I know that's vague and general and sounds cheesy, but it's true. I've seen women do it and I've seen miracles happen when they do that. We're all suffering because of the suppression of the feminine men and women. And it's why we struggle so hard to relate to one another. You know, men don't allow their emotions to come through and we're emotional beings. So by default, there's a wedge between us. And you can apply that to all of the feminine traits that exist within us, but we don't allow them to be pronounced. And especially men are suffering because of that too. They want to be loved just as much as we do. They just don't know how to say it and they don't know why. It's one of those things too, where I just feel like I always say this all the time, but it's kind of crude to say it this way, but I'm like, I can't wait to die. So we can like find out all the things we can't see or all of the ways we sort of suppress it in ourselves to connect, you know? And again, I'm, I'm very much, I don't know if Jason's back there laughing too, but I don't know. For me, I'm a very much a reality-based person. So some parts of the spiritual experience 
I have struggled with the woo woo. So I'll just say that I'll preface what I'm going to say next with that. So I've, I've struggled a little with the woo woo because I'm very much a, like, if I can't touch it, feel it, see it, facts, data, I'm not sure where I feel most collected to the unseen is through nature. And what I will say that is undeniable for me is my connection to something that's bigger than myself. And I am satisfied saying, I don't know what that thing is. I don't think it has a gender, first of all, but I I know that there's something that created us and that is constantly helping me out in my life, whether I realize it or not. And above and beyond that, I do feel very deeply that I have these two spirit guides. And one to me is like my power animal that shows up all the time. My partner, Graham, is always getting photos of hawks from me or little notes about hawks, but I get a hawk all the time. I just saw two hawks in their mating dance this morning when I was walking through the forest. It was really beautiful. And then for some reason, this big, bright black and yellow butterfly finds me wherever I go. I don't know. I think it's my spirit guide, but I don't normally talk to them. So I know you do that work, but I just know they're always there and they're always like with me and they're constantly reminding me that they're there. And then the last piece I would say is when I read Laura Lynn Jackson's science book, I started to have, I would say, experiences of my loved ones from the other side, finding me through signs, which I thought was really interesting. I love that for you, it has to be tangible because I think that that can resonate with so many people, you know, and I think that, you know, yes, I go on and I talk about spirit guides and how they're there and how I connect with mine and how you can connect connect with yours. And, you know, I, I do that for the people who are interested in the people who, who feel that, that that's right for them, but it's okay if it's not right for you, right? It's okay. Like, it's okay for you to feel connected to spirit, just being in nature or dancing or doing art or whatever it is like that's okay too there's no rule book there's no right or wrong there's no rule book it's what's right for you right for the individual so going back to the not comparing i think that that's so wonderful and i'm so glad that you shared that as far as that's how you feel connected because absolutely nothing wrong with that and you recognize that and that's for you so that's wonderful well, and, and some way to tie it back to the religion piece, uh, which I think is pr- pretty interesting. When I was in my religious experience, because I questioned a lot and I couldn't get answers, I was often, I would say, bullied for not having faith. And I would be told many times, there's that scripture in the Bible that says, like, even somebody with the faith as small as a mustard seed, which we know is like the smallest seed you can find in all of that class of flower or whatever. And people would tell me that. And when I came into my spiritual experience, I felt liberated from having to be forced to believe. And I still feel like there's some part of me that is still unwilling, whether that's my human side or not, to suspend all reality to connect. And I've just accepted it about myself. I wish I could do what you do, but my mind doesn't work like that. My soul, my heart doesn't. But I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt that there is so much more to this human experience that is divine. And I can't put words to it. Well, gosh, uh, Krista, you gave such 
wonderful advice and, and such good information so far. I am curious, though, to help wrap up our interview today. What advice would the Krista of today give the Krista from her past? Oh, man. So I'm working on my second book. It's called The Anatomy of Healing. And I don't know if you've been to therapy or anyone who's listening that's been to therapy, but there's this practice of going back to your child self and finding that child in that bad place or bad space and showing up as your centered, stable, loving, unconditionally available self and giving that child everything you need. And I thought to myself, I had done it in therapy and one day after therapy, I had this really moving healing moment in my second foster home, which was very, very violent. And I went back and I took that little girl out of the house and I brought her into my current home that I'm in right now. And I lit that house on fire. I didn't know I needed to do this, but I, and it was just so cathartic and it released me in a way that I, I don't even have words for it now. But after I got through that and cried a lot and got into my bath for a long time, I thought, I bet because we don't understand the space-time continuum completely, I bet we are our own angels. And maybe I did go back in time, like really, and pick that little girl up and got her out of that house and brought her somewhere safe. And it's like, it's going to move me to tears now. But to answer your question, that's what we can all do. And not just me going back to every moment of our lives. Inner kindness is the alchemic formula for healing ourselves and coming home to ourselves. So what I would say to old Krista, whatever iteration she was, was to be gentle and kind and compassionate and accepting of how she is in that moment so that she can be relinquished from any expectation or any forcible outside entity or anything that is is forcing her to be something besides herself. That's what I would say. I just got chills from that. That's amazing. Okay, I'm going to sit with that. But you know, thank you so much for sharing that. That's incredible advice. Thank you so much for sharing your amazing journey so far with us. I really appreciate you. And I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Laura. I had a wonderful time with you. And I think you're amazing as well. And I I love what you're doing, even if I still can't suspend my own reality to understand it all. <laughs> I love that we can be in community with each other anyway. I'm just grateful that there's people out there in the world that can somehow connect. And I know it's true because I've had people tell me things that is undeniable. And I know you receive messages that it's you just it's undeniable. So I'm glad that you're doing your work and you're living in it. So keep keep up your great work. And that was another episode of a guided life podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, love and light always. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. 
Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.